This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. This is Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Thanks for listening to Global Tennessee. Today we have uh, a special uh, interview with Ambassador Christopher Hill. He's in Nashville as part of the Tennessee World Affairs Council Distinguished Visiting Speaker Program. And he's here for two days to talk to uh, community groups. And we've uh, been fortunate to bring him into the Tennessee World Affairs Council office to uh, talk with us on the Global Tennessee podcast. Uh, welcome, uh, Ambassador Hill, and thanks for coming to Nashville. Thank you. Real pleasure. Uh, let me uh, just give our listeners uh, a, a little bit of bio, and they can get more information on the podcast notes uh, about uh, your career as a foreign service officer and uh, a uh, an ambassador to four countries and assistant secretary of state for Near Eastern and Pacific Affairs and the head uh, delegate to the six-party talks, participant in the Dayton Accords, uh, the Baltic negotiations, uh, and living and uh, serving around the world. And, and thank you for uh, your service. And, and again, uh, for our uh, listeners, uh, please be sure to go to our podcast notes and look at uh, Ambassador Hill's uh, biography. Uh, thanks again for coming, Ambassador. Well, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for inviting me to Nashville, Tennessee. Never been here before. But uh, it's just been, uh, it's one of these iconic uh, cities in America. Uh, Everyone knows about it. Not everyone yet has been here. Although, judging from the traffic, I think everyone is uh, going to be here. Well, fortunately, you haven't been run over by a scooter yet, so I think think you're in good shape. But but, uh, we're glad to have you here in Nashville, and uh, hopefully we can continue to extend some Nashville hospitality for the rest of uh, your visit. You've uh, already covered a lot of ground. It's uh, it's it's only the mid-afternoon of your first day here, and you you started out at the crack of dawn, uh, invited to uh, a local TV studio for a live appearance on MSNBC to talk about the Taliban negotiations, and then we went to Martin Luther King Magnet High School, where you talked to a, a full house of uh, young inquisitive students. And then to several hundred um, uh, leaders from the Nashville community at the Nashville uh, Rotary Club. So you've uh, already paid your dues, uh, and and, uh, thanks for that. But we're also looking forward to a global town hall tonight and then a session with the International Business Council. So we we like to get uh, as as much as we can out of our speakers when, when we can get them here to Nashville. Uh, but uh, you, you already talked about a couple of things that uh, will be of interest to our Global Tennessee listeners as well. And at the National Rotary Club, you talked about uh, the broad outlines of U.S. foreign policy and your experience and, and insights and perspectives. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about what you talked about at, at Rotary, and then we'll uh, drill down a little deeper. Well, it was interesting. At Rotary, I was uh, to talk about, oh, 20 minutes and kind of go through all the troubles in the world. And as you start going through them, you realize you probably need more than 20 minutes because I was talking about situation in the Middle East. I was talking about relations with China, relations with Russia, talking about those always cuddly, friendly North Koreans. And um, frankly, it was, it was a lot to get through, but it was a great audience, a lot of interest, and a lot of great questions from them. Uh, I would say, though, I really enjoyed going to uh, MLK uh, Magnet School 
uh, here and seeing these wonderful, uh, wonderful students who uh, I think will really make a difference in our world. And I think it's, it's just a very positive thing to see this next generation poised to um, do good things. Well, thanks for, for making that uh, that trip. We we try to get um, our distinguished visiting speakers to go to our uh, Metro Nashville public schools uh, to give the, the young people, as, as you noted, uh, an insight into what's going on in the world, the global affairs uh, uh, arena. And for some of them who may never have considered a future in international relations, whether it's business or diplomacy or, or whatever, uh, it's interesting to see the light bulbs come on when when people with uh, your breadth and depth of experience uh, uh, can get uh, in front of them. Um, at, uh, at Rotary, you, you, uh, you laid out uh, your vision of what, uh, what you see U.S. foreign policy, um, somewhat the goals and objectives and, and, and where uh, where the, the current uh, trends are going. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? You know, in foreign policy, the uh, urgent often kind of crowds out the important, and for that reason, we talked about the urgency of this North Korean issue. But I think uh, it was important to get into some of the questions of, uh, or the issues related to China as a rising power and Russia as a declining power. Uh, and overall, I think it's fair to say that as a declining power, it's a little more dangerous. They don't quite have the sense of patience nor the uh, sense of, uh, of uh, commitment and being a stakeholder in the world system. Uh, China is certainly a challenge right now, uh, but you know I think as Americans we need to keep in mind that that country is going to be around for a long time. There are a lot of Chinese, and we need to find out a way forward, what I described as sort of uh, patterns of cooperation. I think one of the areas we can work with China on is North Korea. We've done it before. I think we need to do it again. And I was trying to make the point that um, North Korea is a lot of countries' problems, not just our problem, and uh, we need to do a much better job of uh, enlisting uh, partners, friends and partners in this process. And I would um, try to start with the, with the Chinese. Um, an important question came up, this whole issue of the Taliban. And uh, again, uh, when you have a negotiation and you're trying to extract your troops, uh, uh, you know, you end up talking to bad guys. You end up talking to people that you wouldn't send necessarily send a Christmas card to. And so that's certainly true with respect to the Taliban. But uh, I think we have, a, how to put it, a rather unusual administration where we have a president who really kind of wants to be in on things. And uh, the consequence was he, um, the idea was really to bring them to uh, Camp David. Now, I'm not saying Camp David is some kind of mausoleum uh, for the presidency, but, you know, when you bring someone there, that's a pretty important place, and uh, commitments made at Camp David should be commitments of a historical nature, ones that really stick. And it's not entirely clear to me that the Taliban was prepared to do that, starting with the fact that they have consistently refused to deal with the Afghan government, which uh, has been elected and they call them our puppets. And I think that is uh, not kind of the right mindset to enter any kind of negotiation in. So I think it was appropriate that the president kind of pulled the plug on this, uh, but I'm not sure it was so appropriate that they went on on this idea for several weeks without telling anybody. 
Well, for, for our listeners, this is uh, being recorded on the Monday morning after uh, President Trump tweeted that uh, he had canceled secret negotiations with the Taliban uh, after they had uh, initiated an attack uh, in Afghanistan that killed one American service member and 12 others. Uh, and that was the nature of your uh, live uh, on-camera MSNBC interview this morning, and, and it's become quite a lively uh, topic. Uh. And I think will be so for, for some time. But I think the lion's share of what I talked about with the uh, uh, with Rotary was the issue of the North Korean negotiations, why it's dangerous to just walk away from it, but why the uh, path forward is rather fraught. And I think we need to be careful that we're not uh, creating a situation where we take steps they don't take steps, and our steps tends to lead to a kind of decoupling of the U.S. relationship in North in Northeast Asia. So a lot of issues to uh, to consider. Now you shared with the Rotary Club uh, some personal uh, personal experience uh, negotiating with North Korea, and can you uh, summarize uh, again your your role in the six party talks and. And uh, you were showing me on the cover of your book that you were dressed up in uh, in a radioactive uh, protection garb and in, inside nuclear reactors in North Korea and, and, and some pretty uh, interesting things that uh, people don't hear about every day. You know, one thing in the Foreign Service, you do a lot of things, and then afterwards you kind of wonder, uh, should I have really done that? Uh, I remember uh, in, in Iraq uh, being out of my car south of a place called Nasiriya, and then having an improvised explosive device go up in, in front of the car. Unfortunately, no one was, uh, was hurt, I mean, hurt badly, but uh, I remember thinking at night, why was I doing that? And certainly when you're going in to see a North Korean nuclear reactor uh, and you see all the, uh, to put it kindly, uh, intermediate technology that the North Koreans have put to it, especially in the area of safety, you kind of wonder, was that a, um, a good choice that day? Uh, I think what we we're trying to do, of course, was to uh, not only get the North Koreans to shut it down, which they did, but also get them to dismantle um, aspects of it, uh, which they subsequently did. Uh, alas, they subsequently, after that, uh, began to rebuild sections of it, and I, as far as I know, they, they are now merrily producing uh, the spent fuel, which is used to make plutonium. But certainly for about 10 years, we got them out of that business, and that was a very tough negotiation with them that I intend to go into more when, uh, when we meet uh, tonight at the World Affairs Club. Now, what time frame was this again, the uh, six-party talks? Well, I was the assistant secretary for East Asia Pacific, and the, um, this was when President Bush came to, uh, uh, came or won his second term. And they asked, he and uh, Secretary uh, Rice asked me to come back from being uh, ambassador in South Korea, which is a wonderful job, and to be the assistant secretary for East Asia and to be the chief uh, or the head of the U.S. delegation to the six-party talks. This was an arrangement uh, where the Chinese president at the time uh, and um, and the uh, uh, and President Bush got together in Crawford, Texas, and decided, look, uh, the U.S. can't solve this alone. So we need China involved. We need the, all the regional powers involved, including Japan, uh, Russia, uh, South uh, South Korea. So so, so we put together this uh, group a group of countries under China's chairmanship. 
that included the rest of us, U.S., South Korea, uh, Japan, and Russia, and of course North Korea. And we tried to disabuse the North Koreans of the idea that they needed nuclear weapons. So um, not an easy process. And um, you know, when you're trying to uh, convince the representatives of another country to do something they don't want to do, uh, it's always a challenge. But you've got to be willing to, uh, to talk to them and talk to them directly, which is what we did. And uh, you, you related some, some stories about uh, frustrations with, with your interlocutors on the other side. And yeah, I mean, they would uh, sometimes, the North Koreans would sometimes uh, agree to something and then not agree to it. Uh, they didn't necessarily have a kind of linear notion of uh, how they were going to, um, you know, what they're going to agree to, and then you go on to the next point and the next point. Instead, they kind of circle back to issues. And so it was, it was difficult. But uh, since they were there uh, with five other countries, it made it a little more difficult for them to back out of things. And I think that's the value of uh, what uh, Chinese President Jiang Zemin and, and U.S. President uh, uh, Bush understood. That is, if you get everyone there, it's not so easy to walk out on commitments you make in front of five other countries. But if there's any country that can do something like that, it would be the North Koreans. They really don't care what the rest of us think. It, it's, it seems that way. Now, now looking at uh, the current situation, how, how would you assess, how would you compare what was going on then with what's happening now in terms of the conversations with uh, North Korea? Well, I'm frankly uh, and sadly rather um, uh, discouraged about what's going on. Now, uh, just this afternoon as we sit here, uh, there was a, uh, an announcement that they expect talks to get going by the end of September. So we'll see what that means. Uh, that the North Koreans have said that, but they also said the U.S. has to completely change their approach. So what do they mean by that? And it seems pretty clear that the North Koreans uh, are not interested in a process of uh, denuclearization, but rather more interested in a process of normalization with the U.S. Um, when I was involved with this, we, we sat down together. We drew up a common document called the Joint Statement, September 19, 2005. And that joint statement um, set out a series of obligations on the part of, uh, of uh, the North Koreans, that is to denuclearize, but also obligations uh, uh, for the U.S. to uh, normalize with North Korea and uh, even to create a peace uh, treaty eventually. Uh, but the first point was that North Korea must denuclearize and rejoin the treaty, uh, the nonproliferation treaty. Um, when President Trump went to Singapore, they didn't do this kind of work. They kind of, uh, uh, you know, as people sometimes do, they were just trying to wing it. And I think the consequence was it was a little vague what the North Koreans had agreed to. And I think to some extent the U.S. side kind of got off on this tangent of somehow uh, recognizing North Korea, of somehow, um, even more importantly than that, agreeing that some, there's something wrong with U.S. military exercises in South Korea. The president said at the end of Singapore, you know, that exercises are very important, are very uh, expensive. Well. Uh, they may be, but compared to actual wars, they are extremely cheap. And the only regret I've ever had about U.S. exercises in Korea is that we did not have them in the spring of 1950. So the president seems to be getting involved in a kind of uh, freeze of North Korean long-range uh, missile tests and, and nuclear tests, of course. Uh, 
against a freeze of U.S. exercises in South Korea. I think the latter kind of leads to a kind of decoupling scenario, and the former, that is the freeze North Korea has accepted, is really not freezing their program. You know, testing is one element of a program, but there are a lot of other research elements of a program, and we have no fidelity on that. We have no way to see whether they're really doing that or, or not. So uh, I think in the lack of preparation, you know, the results of a summit meeting is related, is related directly to the amount of preparation you put in. The more preparation, the more results. And the president seemed to want to wing it from the get-go. He did not have anyone trying to work out a uh, joint statement ahead of time. Uh, so I think we are where we are, and we're not very far. So uh, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And one certainly does get the impression that the president wants this thing to hold about the time through the uh, 2020 elections. Well, that's not long enough. And frankly speaking, I think uh, we need to do a better job of rising above our politics. Well, let's, uh, let's hope that uh, we get a better outcome uh, in, in the uh in the future with uh, with that negotiation. Uh, just a reminder, you're listening to the Global Tennessee Podcast from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. We're talking with Ambassador Christopher Hill. Uh, he is a uh, distinguished uh, diplomat who has uh, probably uh, as much, if not more, knowledge about uh, East Asian affairs than, uh, than uh, many other people. And he's talking with us today about North Korea. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, China um, and uh, his experiences elsewhere in the world. He's, uh, he's been everywhere, done everything. He has uh, related some interesting uh, anecdotes uh, about riding scooters in Cameroon and uh, some, some other uh, fun things around the world. Um, again, uh, thanks, Ambassador Hill, for uh, coming in and, and talking with us. Uh, let's turn, if we can, to China. Now, when you landed here in Nashville yesterday, uh, you were... Uh, 24, 30 hours into a trip that originated in Beijing, and you didn't even get to go home and and uh, change out your shirt. So we appreciate you uh, coming directly to Nashville from from that visit. And I understand you were at uh, at least a, a conference and probably some high level meetings. So you're fresh with knowledge of what uh, what conversations in Beijing are are about. And, and obviously we have some uh, turn of the nature of the relationship between the United States and China. Uh, it seems that in, in the last couple of years, people have um, moved away from perhaps thinking China was a friendly competitor to being some, something else. So give us, uh, if you can, the, the brief uh, on, uh, on where we are in that, that account. Well, uh, you're quite right. I uh, left China Sunday morning, and with the uh, time difference, with the time difference, I, I got to uh, the U.S. Uh, Sunday afternoon, so, uh, so it has been, a, has been a long trip, but it was a fascinating trip to, to be there and to talk to the Chinese and see how they're feeling these days. First of all, I think it's important for Americans to understand that uh, just as we learned in high school economics, when you have a tariff, you essentially reduce efficiencies uh, in your industry and uh, maybe in the industries that you have uh, laid tariffs against. So I think in the case of the U.S.-China tariffs, we have hurt the Chinese economy. We've also hurt our economy. So one of the big questions, of course, is who's getting hurt more? 
And at this point, that's uh, hard to answer. But what we do know is that the Chinese don't seem to be anxious uh, to settle this problem. Uh, and in fact, the Chinese are, uh, are kind of wondering whether they should try to wait this out, whether they should wait for a new administration, or whether, in fact, they, um, uh, there's something they can do. Now, one thing that was interesting to me was in talking to the, um, to the Chinese, when the president um, solved some of the economic problems with Mexico, um, uh, several weeks after he solved those problems with Mexico, he put additional tariffs on Mexico based on his view that the Mexicans were not doing enough to stem the flow of illegal immigration through their country that was pitching up at our, at our border, at our southern border. Well, his use of, of uh, tariffs, the same instrument that he was using to signal our dissatisfaction with the economic uh, with the economic relationship, he was now using as punishment to Mexico for something they were doing in non-economic areas, that is the, uh, uh, the issue of uh, border enforcement. So he put on additional uh, tariffs on, on Mexico, and when the Chinese saw that, they thought, you know, if we're going to try to resolve these tariff issues, how do we know that the next day he won't put additional um, measures on us having to do with uh, something that has nothing to do with, uh, with tariffs, with, uh, with unfair trade. So the Chinese, I think, are very worried about whether they can reach a deal with us and a deal that would stick. So that was kind of one takeaway for me on, that, uh, on, on the trip. Um, the other takeaway is, of course, China's a little bit of a different place than it was when I was dealing with it 10 years ago. And um, one of the areas where it's different is 10 years ago, they had a pretty uh, organized succession system. That is, a Chinese leader would serve a first term, and then depending on the, on, um, the various uh, um, political um, uh, views in Beijing, that president would either get a second term or not get a second term. Well, now that whole succession question has been uh, abolished. And uh, I think it's fair to say the Chinese leadership uh, is there for as long as he wants to be there. Uh, and that's a, that creates all kinds of different dynamics, and not all of them posit positive. Uh, in fact, uh, it's a kind of negative development. And so there's a lot of concern within China of how they're going to manage their political system uh, going forward. They're also experiencing um, difficult uh, growth. That is, uh, used to be China was safely in that double-digit range and uh, or 8% uh, GDP growth. That's slipping now. That's, that's less. Now, part of it is understandable. After all, the country is... Um, got one of the uh, second largest economy in the world. You can't keep growing at double digits when you get up to that kind of uh, uh, size. But it also is worrying the Chinese in that they know they have to kind of move up the uh, uh, technology ladder and uh, be even more integrated in the world. And they're running into a lot of protectionism, including from us. Now, uh, for years, we warned the Chinese that they were running huge surpluses against the U.S. And at a time when there was just sweeping technological change, uh, automation was really uh, uh, affecting many manufacturing jobs in this country and elsewhere, it 
since it corresponded with this growth of China's exports, many people in this country and elsewhere have, have essentially said that job loss is caused by China, not caused by automation. So the Chinese have been paying a price for things they haven't really done uh, because they have run sort of politically unsustainable um, uh, surpluses with us and with some other countries. Um, clearly, the way to handle this is to be very, be very tough with the Chinese, but to try to do it with other countries as well. I mean, it shouldn't just be a bilateral issue. It should be an issue involving the World Trade Organization. It should be an issue involving other manufacturing countries that have been treated to the same uh, uh, practices that, uh, that China has uh, treated the U.S. It should be uh, something that doesn't all come down to this bilateral dispute. Yet, I'm not sure— Would we have been uh, in a better spot if TPP had passed? Oh, no question we would have been a better uh, spot if the uh, uh, Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership had passed. It would have been much better. But I'm not sure the president understands these things or is interested in these things. So see that you can see that this relationship with China is rather fraught right now. The Chinese are not sure what to do about it, which is why they've invited a lot of people over for a big conference uh, to see if there's a kind of way forward on this. Uh, again, they're very nervous about the current administration. When they hear people within the uh, current administration uh, talk about the idea of decoupling the relationship, that somehow it's a good thing if we buy less from China and more from other countries and things like that, they kind of question whether we're committed to uh, uh, pushing forward with a free and open trade system. And to ask them to do so and then to be going in the other direction for us is not going to work for them. So a lot of issues now that need to be looked at. Now, all that said, my own view is China is a rising power. Uh, they have their problems. I wouldn't, you know, if I were the U.S. president, I wouldn't want to exchange my inbox with that of uh, Xi Jinping's inbox, uh, the Chinese president's mm -hmm. inbox. But I would uh, be very, uh, be, uh, you know, very concerned that we're not kind of addressing problems together. And to some extent, we need to have a much better level of cooperation if we're going to go forward. Well, we're talking with Ambassador uh, Christopher Hill, and uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll uh, be back uh, to talk more with uh, the ambassador about his experiences as a uh, uh, American diplomat on the forefront of uh, diplomacy around the world for several decades and uh, his leadership within the State Department. Uh, thanks, uh, Ambassador Hill, and uh, we'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council. We invite you to share your thoughts with us in email, info at tnwac.org. You can subscribe to the World Affairs Council newsletter on the website, tnwac.org. And you can like us on Facebook at Tennessee WAC, as well as follow us on Twitter at tnwac. Don't forget to tell your friends about Global Tennessee and the World Affairs Council. This podcast and other educational programs from the World Affairs Council are supported by you and our sponsors. Are you interested in supporting global affairs awareness in your community? Visit tnwac.org for more information. Welcome back. This is Global Tennessee. I'm Pat Ryan from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. We're talking with Ambassador Christopher Hill. Uh, he served in the U.S. State Department as a Foreign Service Officer. He was ambassador of four posts around the world. He uh, served as the Assistant Secretary of State 
for Near East and Pacific Affairs, and he has experience negotiating in North Korea and in the Balkans, and he has uh, many uh, experiences around the world that hopefully we can uh, get him to share some of those with us now. Thanks uh, again, Ambassador, for being here with us. Thank you very much. Real pleasure. You, uh, you related to uh, some of the young people at Martin Luther King uh, Magnet High School here today, how you got uh, to be a Foreign Service officer, and it started out in Cameroon as a Peace Corps volunteer. That's right. That's g- right. G- give us those. Uh, in the Navy, we call them sea stories. I don't know what they call them in the Foreign Service. But foreign uh, Service stories. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, it's an amazing experience to um, go off as a Peace Corps volunteer. Uh, first of all, I just did it right after college. I mean, I graduated in June. I was in the Peace Corps by the end of July, and I was in the middle of Cameroon by uh, uh, August 10th, my birthday, actually. And so um, uh, you arrive there, you go off into this place, but you're by yourself. There are uh, other Peace Corps volunteers there, but uh, you're a long way from family and friends. And uh, you try to learn what your job is going to be. In my case, it was uh, I was in the southeast uh, division in, in Cameroon, right on the Nigerian border, uh, a place called FACO Division. Uh, and uh, my job was I had 28 of these little village and plantation banks, credit unions, and uh, my job was to audit the books. And so for transport, uh, you went around on a Suzuki 125 dirt bike, and I'd roll into a village and uh, take my adding machine and go into the uh, you know school teacher's uh, office. A school teacher often being the bookkeeper of the credit union. Then I would uh, essentially balance the books and make sure uh, everything was was safe. And you know you go from a situation in college where you're not responsible for even walking someone's dog. I mean you're. Uh, don't have a lot of responsibility and then you're you know a couple of months later you're in the peace corps and you're responsible for people's life savings so it's great and, and not too much direction you're kind of on your own you're kind of on your own and uh it's kind of frightening uh the degree to which people look to you for and, and uh, cameroon is not new england no it's it's a long way from uh from new england new england long way from college and uh you know, to sit there and basically make sure everything's going well. Uh, I always remember one story where I um, saw that this credit union, that the money was very much concentrated, or the loan money, I should say, was very concentrated in the hands of a few board members. And so I took this to the general membership. I thought this was outrageous. And uh, the reaction to to my... Uh, Uh, to what I had done was very positive. People were thanking me, standing up. It was a general membership meeting of 400 or so people. People were thanking me for all all the work I had done, and uh, and then I proposed that we have a new uh, a new election for that uh, for that um, credit union, and um, so I had taken the liberty of coming up with a group of people that I thought would be a great board of directors, and I proposed them. Uh, to uh, be the new board and to vote out the old board. Well, uh, to make a long story short, uh, we did the voting and everyone voted for the old board. And I remember thinking, well, they liked what I said. They thanked me publicly. They, many of the members stood up and scolded the uh, members of the old board. But then they voted the old board back in. And so for me, it was a lesson at the age of 22 that uh, you shouldn't think you can tell someone else who they should elect 
for their leadership. And that's a lesson I retained throughout my foreign service. That is, you can give your opinion, you can work with countries, but ultimately it's going to be up to them. And uh, I thought it was a very valuable lesson at the age of 22. So that was your uh, your Peace Corps experience, and from there, uh, foreign service. And, and uh, right, tell us tell us about coming up through the ranks. Well, you know, uh, a lot of people when they think foreign service, they think being an ambassador. On day and one. So on day one. So uh, I get many questions from people. How do you become an ambassador? And uh, <laughs> as if that's going to be day two. Sure. And uh, in fact, it's a long slog. It's a very long slog. And uh, what you do is you have a series of assignments, not unlike the military, you know, two-year assignment, three-year assignment. And what you have to do is embrace each assignment like it's the last job you'll ever have and just do the best job you can. And then the totality of that could result in someone saying, you know, you've done a great job and now we want you to be ambassador to Country X. Now, by the way, Country X may not be something you're familiar with. Uh, you know, people, you know, the, the first job ambassadorship is not necessarily, you know, going to Paris or going to London. In my case, it was going to Skopje, Macedonia. And uh, as a foreign service officer who was kind of steeped in all those problems in the Balkans, I had spent a lot of time working on the, in the Dayton Peace Accords, trying to bring peace to Bosnia. I was very much steeped in those issues. So I was very honored to be asked to, to be the first American ambassador to the Republic of uh, Macedonia. So uh, I what embraced- What year was this? Uh, this was in uh, uh, 1996. So I embraced that job, and while I was doing that, uh, they asked me to, um, to uh, also be the special envoy for, for neighboring Kosovo because we had a problem where the Albanians wanted independence in Kosovo. Uh, the Serbs wanted it to remain a part of Serbia. So I pushed a, um, for a, a kind of a broad autonomy deal, which unfortunately for my reputation became known as the Hill Plan. Uh, so the Hill Plan was uh, too much for the Serbs and too little for the Albanians. But nonetheless, I think it showed the U.S. was very sincere in trying to find a uh, common ground between the parties. Uh, very difficult thing, but uh, at a certain point, uh, things kind of fell apart. Uh, the U.S. started bombing Serbia, and the Serbs started sending many of those people from Kosovo as refugees into Macedonia. And my embassy uh, kind of took the lead in, in working with the Macedonian government, coming up with refugee camps and trying to deal with this uh, huge humanitarian problem. Well, for all these, these efforts, uh, I was then asked by then Secretary uh, of State Madeleine Albright to go to Poland, where I had served as a junior officer, and uh, to go there and to work in that uh, great relationship. And after that, I went on, and uh, when President Bush asked me to go to South Korea, and uh, after that, I was uh, on to being Assistant Secretary. And then finally, uh, during the Obama administration, Secretary uh, Hillary Clinton uh, and, and President Obama asked me to go to Iraq and see what we could do to civilianize that mission and ultimately to get our troops out of that country and uh, to let the Iraqis kind of take over. Was that your toughest post? It was one of my toughest posts. Uh, there were many. Um, there were there were many people who had different views on what to do. 
Uh, there were people who simply did not like President Obama for whatever reason, and since I was his first ambassador, sent out to a field, sent out to a post, uh, you know, you had to kind of take some of that incoming flack from people. Uh, but it was also, I think, a, a, a position where you were really proud to be representing the United States. Uh, it was a tough job, but, you know, uh, I was not interested in doing easy jobs at that point, so I appreciated the opportunity the president gave me. Just a reminder, we're talking with Ambassador Christopher Hill, uh, a career uh, foreign service officer, served as ambassador to four posts around the world. Uh, ambassador Hill, we're, we're about to wrap up. We're uh, over time here, but uh, any uh, any last reflections? Uh, I know you've got a, a memoir out, uh, Outpost, uh, the front lines of American diplomacy, which uh, folks can find on Amazon. We've, we've got a copy here in the office that uh, we're going to catch up on. But um, any uh, any distilled thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Uh, I think uh, many Americans, uh, you know, I'm from uh, Little Compton, Rhode Island, and no one in Little Compton wakes up in the morning thinking, you know, we've got to dominate the thinking around the world. Uh, it's kind of the idea that we are so important and so present in so many other countries in the world is something people don't even feel particularly comfortable about. And yet we are, and I think uh, we need to embrace this challenge. For people who say, oh, the American century is past, we're on to, what, China? I don't think so. I think China is going to have a lot more problems uh, in the coming years than, than we are, frankly. Uh, if people say, oh, no, Europe will take over leadership in the world, I don't think so. I think the U.S. has tremendous responsibilities. So I think it is kind of up to our citizenry to remain engaged. I think we need to uh, kind of learn from mistakes. I think we need to be careful in the use of uh, sending our military. And I think we in particular need to be careful not to conflate sending uh, military with sending diplomats. Uh, I think we need to be influential in the world, but that doesn't mean by, uh, by having the military there. That means by having diplomats there. Mm -hmm. And I think Americans have had trouble understanding that because you're interested in a country doesn't mean that you have to be at war or somehow uh, be in a armed uh, situation with that country. You can send diplomats. I think uh, Americans make very good diplomats. I think we, we do a lot of listening. We don't bring a lot of historical baggage. I mean, most Americans working on the Balkans really couldn't tell you much about the history before, you know, last Tuesday or something. So uh, I think we're, we're pretty good at it. And I think uh, the task for us is to understand this is a real vital resource for our country and we ought to invest more in diplomacy. Well, thank you for uh, your time today. We uh, barely scratched the surface and hopefully you'll be back in Nashville again. We have uh, much more to show you than we've been able to and in 24 hours, and, and you're uh, returning to Denver tomorrow. Uh, so we'll uh, hopefully have you uh, back to talk with us some more uh, because your uh, your experience and, and insights and perspectives are something that uh, we need to understand in important places like China, North Korea, and, and elsewhere around the world. Well, let me thank you and uh, for what you do with the Tennessee uh, World Affairs Council. I think it's uh, 
these are the kind of councils we need all over the country, not just in Tennessee, but uh, we need to be, it's a way that our citizens can really learn about the world, understand the practical problems we deal with, and kind of provide a sort of infrastructure for those who understand uh, the role the U.S. Uh, has played in the world. So thank you for all you do, and thank you especially for inviting me to Nashville, Tennessee. This just has to be one of the coolest places in the country. Great, great. Well, thanks for coming. And that'll uh, do it for today's edition of uh, Global Tennessee. We've been talking with Ambassador Christopher Hill, who's here in Nashville as part of the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Distinguished Visiting Speaker Program. Uh, Check uh, TNWAC.org for our calendar to see when uh, we have the next program that might be of interest to you. Uh, Just a reminder, October 13th, we'll be having a luncheon with Ambassador Samantha Power, former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Again, look at the tnwac.org for details on that. That'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Uh, please tell your friends about Global Tennessee. Uh, visit our soundcloud.com slash tnwac site to write a review, leave some comments, and check the podcast notes. Uh, thanks again. This is Patrick Ryan for the Tennessee World Affairs Council. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy. I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org podcast for more information.